Uh, turn, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. I've been making good pro- pro- progress on my project. Uh, I'm going to put a TV mount on that pole that's sticking up there and mount a TV and put all the audiovisual stuff, all the equipment in the middle and the subwoofer in the bottom and have some drawers on the side to put the stuff in. And, and uh, I've been enjoying it in particular because I'm not in a hurry. I love woodworking, but I hate being in a hurry because I'm really not that good at it. Uh, I, re- I got started on this fine woodworking, uh, how old is Harrison? Is he nine years old? Nine, uh, nine years ago when, when daughter Molly said, I want you to build a crib for Harrison, and I, I thought, why would you ask me that? <laughs> so I went online and found out how much uh, a crib costs you know, a nice wooden crib, and I spent that much on tools. <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I'm gradually making some progress, but uh, I went and bought a piece of oak plywood. I want to build this out of oak. I'm going to paint it, and I know that doesn't sound right with oak plywood, but you get that nice grain effect in it, in the paint. And uh, so I went to buy a piece of oak plywood down to Windsor Plywood, and I looked at it, and I went, Dude, that's twice as much as the last time I was here. He said, yeah, I know, it's gone way up. Okay, give it to me anyway. But in part, because it's such expensive material, I am measuring two or three or four times (laughs) before I turn the table saw on. Uh, Not hard at all to turn up with a bunch of pieces that don't fit quite right. Uh, I I, I worked out a good plan and then when I got the piece of plywood there, I put a piece of blue tape on it, and I made markings on the blue tape, and I looked at it, and I thought about it, and I did some more. And finally, when I was satisfied that I'd come up with the right plan, then I turned the table saw on, and I started cutting, and, and uh, I'm happy to report that I haven't wasted any materials so far. <laughs> haven't, haven't cut any more fingers off so far either. Uh, you can't afford it. <laughs> um, no, you can't afford my time. <laughs> With valuable materials, it pays to have a well-thought-out plan. And there's nothing more valuable than your spiritual life. And we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul that we've got to choose our actions very carefully if we want to avoid damaging our life, our Christian life, our spiritual life. I hate to almost use the word spiritual to qualify spiritual life because, you know, your spiritual life and your physical life are not two separate things. Did you know that? Did you know you can't do anything without your body? (laughs) That's why in Romans 12 it says, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice and so when i use the word life i'm not talking about physical life i'm not talking about spiritual life i'm talking about your whole life and that's what paul's going to talk about in first corinthians 10 and we're going to study verses 15 through 22 today 14 through 22 therefore my beloved flee from idolatry i speak as to wise men judge for yourselves what i say the cup of blessing which we bless Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? 
For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? If we were to turn back to 1 Corinthians 8.1, we'd read this little phrase. Now concerning the things offered to idols. The Corinthians had written to Paul and said, we have a question. Uh, in our town... They sacrifice food to idols. You know, in the King James, it uses the word meat, but the word, the actual Greek word is any kind of food. They sacrifice food to idols. That is, they lay the food at the idol's feet as an act of worship. Now, later, they'll take that and they'll sell it. Or later, they'll take that and bring it home and have it for dinner. And is it okay for us to eat the the food, the meat, sacrificed to an idol. That's the question that they have. And the Apostle Paul doesn't give them a short answer. He gives them a long answer. Chapter 8, chapter 9. We're in the middle of chapter 10. And he, he does tell them, yes, there are times when it is uh, acceptable to eat the meat sacrificed to an idol. But he starts out, first of all, saying, now, you need to think about other people. You need to think about people who have come out of idol worship. Their conscience is really sensitive to the idol and the falseness there. And you need to be thinking about them and what the impact of your participation in this activity will have on them. That comes forward to us today. We have to ask the question about certain questionable activities. Can I do this thing? Well, the first question to ask is, what will be the impact of your doing it on other people, other Christians, and those who don't know the Lord? And the reason God couches the answer in so many principles is, legitimately, there are different answers at different times. And we're talking about issues that are questionable, not outright right and wrong. You know, one of the, one of the simple examples that I think of uh, and I've mentioned this before, but our missionaries in, uh, in Togo, West Africa, the women don't wear pants, and they certainly don't wear short pants. They always wear dresses that go down to about here because in their culture in Africa, in the culture of that country, only promiscuous or prostitute-type women wear pants or short pants. Okay? Is it wrong to wear pants? No. Is it wrong in that culture for missionaries trying to reach people for the Lord? Yes. Okay? And so when they go on vacation to Ghana, they wear pants. And when they go back to Togo, they put their dress on. Okay? And there's so many things like that around us. Is it wrong to go to a movie? No, it's not wrong to go to a movie. Are there times when it's wrong to go to a movie? Yes. Are there certain movies it's wrong to go to? Yes. Et cetera, et cetera. We can go through all kinds of questionable activities. Today, 
Paul turns from the impact we have on others to the impact we can have on ourselves. And he starts in verse 14 with the key instruction when he says, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry, or as I have called it, to generalize a little bit more, and I think this is legitimate, run from sin. We can all agree that if the Corinthians had done anything that brought them to a point of actually bowing down to and worshiping an idol, whether bowing with their legs or in their mind, we can all agree that worshiping an idol would have been a sin, right? Is there ever a time when it's right to bow to a false god? Okay, that's a little weak. I'd expect a little better from you. Okay, that's clear that that's a sin. And so that's what he's saying. Flee from that sin. Now, earlier he's been saying it's not a sin to eat the meat that's been sacrificed or the food that's been sacrificed, but he's saying when it comes to idolatry itself, you've got to run, not walk. In Paul's sermon on questionable activity, he shifts the impact to the impact on us, and so he's saying, in essence, if we summarize these last two chapters down, we'd say, You can eat the meat sacrificed to an idol in certain conditions, but you cannot worship the idol at all, period. And so God's basic instruction about sin is that we should flee. Now, the image in your mind right now is that of bowing down to an idol, and you're going, yes, we should never bow to an idol, and that's terrible, and I would never do that. Change the image to all sin, all sin, any kind of sin, and say, do you also flee from all of that? Well, most of it. This is a vitally important principle of godliness. God repeats this instruction that we just read here in several other places in in similar ways. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee from the love of money. When when you are tempted to become greedy and want money and things, run away from that just as you would run from idol worship. Flee also youthful, youthful lusts. He's talking about just the strong desires of our human flesh and the things that we have to work at to conquer as we grow older. Here is an example of the word flee, the same Greek word used in a different setting, and I think it really brings a picturesque meaning to the word. Then fearing, this is Paul when he is uh, shipwrecked. The ship is broken up and they're having to get to land. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. Now, when we think of the word flee and, and idol worship and sin, we think, oh yeah, I've got to get away from it. What image comes to your mind when you think of escaping a sinking ship? Is there a little more intensity? (laughs) 
you know, you're fighting for your life. God says we need to flee from sin, run the other way from sin. When I was in fifth grade, I ran afoul of a couple of bully types on the playground. They stole my playground ball, which I had gotten from the teacher, of course. And so I went and told the teacher they took my ball. Well, they didn't like that. And so they threatened me. They said, we'll be waiting for you after school. And sure enough, when school was over, they were waiting for me. And so I took the advice that Jenny gave Forrest when she said, run, Forrest, run. <laughs> and I, I was a little skinnier when I was in fifth grade. And it was a good half mile to our home, maybe farther. And I outran those boys until they were, they were puffing and panting and gave up on me. I ran for my life. <laughs> I was running for my life, and that's what God wants us to do when we see sin coming. Run, Christian, run. Don't stand on the edge of the cliff trying to get a better view of the valley. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I know there's bad stuff down there, but, but you know, yeah, I, I can stand right here. There's no danger here. Well, you're right. It's not a sin for you to stand there. But the question is, what's going to happen? Don't wade into the fast-moving stream. Don't swim in the riptide. When we see sin coming, we've got to run and not look back. The believers in Corinth thought they could hang out in the idol worship temple with the people who worshiped idols and not be influenced to worship the idols. And so we have to ask the question, why does he say flee? He says flee because we don't always recognize the pull and the force that is around us. Can you see the pull? No. Clearly there is a pull. The people in your life are pulling on you for good or for bad. There's no middle ground. They're either pulling you to good or to bad. Now, if you're standing this far apart, you're going, there's no pull, there's no pull, there's no pull. There's no pull, and there you are. Paul is saying, listen, folks, the idol worship stuff is going to pull on you, and if you think, I'm going to stand just as close as I can, it won't get me. Maybe not. Maybe so. The wise Christian steps back from the edge. The wise Christian keeps a space. Why is this so important? Uh, look at verse 15 now, please. You see, he gives us instruction, flee from idolatry, and he almost seems to turn in a different direction, but he doesn't. He's giving some supporting arguments, if you will, and he's going to give three examples of the same truth. 
I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. And I've called this the preface to Paul's teaching. The preface, before he actually goes to the teaching, he says, I'm speaking to wise men now. Now, why does he say that? Does he really think they're mature? Because if he thought they were mature, maybe he didn't need to write this. What he's doing is he's calling their bluff. The Apostle Paul characterized himself and the people in Corinth this way. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. The Corinthians had gotten to thinking about Paul. He's nothing. He's not that smart. We're really smart. We're really strong. And so here now in chapter 10, he goes, I'm talking as to wise men. In other words, he's saying, you're telling me you're smart, you're telling me you're wise, and, and the word here, it has to do with thinking things through. It's kind of a unique word for thoughts. He says, I want to challenge you to think about what I'm about to say. In other words, there's a temptation for us to just dismiss out of hand some things that we don't want to hear. When I was just talking a minute ago about fleeing from sin, some of you were thinking about things in your life, thinking, well, you know, I, I, I think I can handle it. And that's in part because you aren't willing to openly consider everything. Listen to the testimony of these Old Testament era believers in a place called Berea. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word, the word of God, with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. The truly wise Christian hears the teaching of God's servants with an open ears and an open heart and an open Bible and an ongoing prayer for God's help in understanding the truth. I do not expect you to take my words as equal to God's words. I never have. That's why it's always turn here in the Bible, showing you the scripture, and saying, look, examine it for yourself. And so the Apostle Paul prefaces his teaching by saying, now think about this, folks. Now what does he want them to think about? He wants them to think about the principle of connection in worship. And starting in verse 16, he talks about the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ. The word communion here is the same as the word tra most often translated fellowship, and it means to have a relational connection. When we talk about the fellowship of Christians, we're not talking about eating or food, we're talking about the relationship that happens when we eat together, or when we serve together, or when we help one another. The cup of blessing which we bless, is, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the connection with the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The truth that is alluded to here comes from Romans 6. Um, oh, I didn't put that in there, did I? I missed that. No, it's coming later. Scripture makes it clear, I, I need to say this first. When he talks about the Lord's Supper, the first thing that I want to make clear is this. The Scripture makes it clear that the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice for sin, but a celebration of it. Not that he should offer 
himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as is appointed to, for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once. And I just want to stop and make this little point as we go by that uh, when we have the Lord's Supper, it is not taking in of salvation through the juice and the bread. The Catholic Church teaches that when the priest blesses the, the, uh, the elements, they become the body and blood of Christ. And as you take them in, that that is how you fellowship or commune with Christ the error in that thinking is, is that Christ suffers every time. Christ is offering a fresh sacrifice every time that happens. And this scripture makes it clear that the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice for sin, but a celebration of the sacrifice and of our connection to him. We connect with him in worship through the Lord's Supper, through our praises, through our prayers, through all of those things. And all of this connection is based on the reality of Romans 6. Do you not know that as many of us as were immersed, put into Christ Jesus, were baptized or immersed into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be in the likeness of his resurrection. The communion, the fellowship spoken of in 1 Corinthians 10 is what starts at our salvation. When I believe in Christ, I am put into Christ. And forevermore, I am connected. And so when I come and remember his death, burial, and resurrection through the Lord's Supper, I celebrate what he's done for me. The point that Paul is making that we have got to remember here is this. In worship, there is a connection with the God being worshipped. That's the point that he's making he goes on then to a different example, the example of the Old Testament in verse 18. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What does he mean there? What he's saying is this. When they offered a sacrifice, when they offered a sacrifice, some of it was burned. They would take, for instance, in one of the specifications, they'd take the fat of the animal, certain part of the fat, and put it on the fire, and it would burn, and the smoke would rise up, and that was symbolic of offering this, this, this sacrifice to God. Now, the rest of it was divvied up. The priest got some, and the people who worshiped got some, and there were uh, regulations about eating it, and so there was this whole connection, participation thing going on between the worshipers and the person they were worshiping. There's a third example given here, and this comes back to the point at hand for the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 19. What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, here's what I'm saying, he, he says, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to the idols, 
They sacrifice in reality to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship or communion or connection with demons. (laughs) The Gentiles thought they were worshiping an alternative God. The Gentiles, the unsaved people of that day, much like if you were to go to India today and talk about Jesus and believing in Jesus, they would say, well, certainly there are many, many, many gods, and we will worship Jesus along with all of the other gods. Okay, And the people of, of this day thought a similar thing. What they didn't know was there is no alternative God. There's only one God. And the alternatives as they would set up an idol the work of their own hands if there was power that was communicated through that worship if they prayed and things happened the power came from satan and his demons and so paul makes it very clear here when people worship an idol they are worshiping a demon there is a connection to that person that spirit person although the idol has no power and the sacrifice has no power the worshipers still connect with the demon and that brings us that is the that is the support that paul is giving remember his first instruction is flee from idolatry and he and he says why should you flee he says because when you worship an idol you are connecting with that demon and that is not right and so the realization that paul is after is in verse 21 you cannot drink the cup of the lord you cannot celebrate the lord through the lord's supper and drink the cup of demons in an idol worship ceremony at the same time you cannot partake of the lord's table and of the table of demons now Again, for those of us who have been in Christ for any length of time, we'd go, well, of course. You know, uh, if there was a Buddhist temple here across the street. You know, you go to Seattle, that's a possibility. Uh, in our old neck of the woods there in Tuckwilla, right across, I think it's, Buddha, it's either Buddhist or Hindu, right across the freeway from where we used to live, and they're, you know, they're being built regularly in various places. And if there was one right across here, and we said, well, we're having the Lord's Supper, and then later we're going to go over and worship with the Buddhists. Okay. I hope you would say, no. And as a matter of fact, Pastor Dave, we're going to have a long talk with you this afternoon. Okay. You cannot do both. That's the point that Paul is trying to make to these people. He's trying to say, okay, I've told you to flee from idolatry. Let me tell you why. Because in in talking about the food sacrifice to an idol, he's saying, hey, there's no such thing as a false god. There's not not a real worship thing going on here. It's a different thing. And so the people may have been getting to the point of thinking, well, I guess it's okay for us to go to the idol temple because it's not real. No, he says, no, 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 don't, don't misunderstand me here. He said, what's going on there? Those people are connecting, but they're connecting with demons. And you cannot, 
You cannot put one foot in the demon temple and one foot in God's church. You can't do that. And we're going to come to the reason in a minute. It's in verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Can you imagine God in heaven going, oh, that's okay. Your neighbors are Buddhists. You go worship with them too. Not likely. Not at all. But the realization that Paul is after here that comes forward to us beyond specific idol worship, and I, and I don't want to downplay idol worship. Um, you know, uh, Ralph and Margie lived in Brazil where they worship idols, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, Iola, one of our other retired missionary folks in Africa, where they worship idols. <laughs> I mean, there are many places in the world where this specifically and directly applies to Christians. And it is a struggle for them to take all of the paraphernalia they used to use to worship the idols and burn it in the fire. Okay, so I don't want to downplay that specific application. If you ever find yourself, somebody saying to you, I'll go to your church if you come to mine, the answer is no. No, no, not unless it's another evangelical church. That's a different question. If they've got false worship going on, the answer is no. But there is an application for us today that is very important. Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to realize that a Christian cannot live in two spiritual worlds at once. This is parallel to, to instruction. Um, I, I'm not sure if I put that sentence in your notes there. You can finish it up. He wanted them to realize they cannot live in two spiritual worlds at once. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul wrote this, Do not be unequally connected together with unbelievers. Coming back to how the unbelievers and the ungodly things in our world affects us. He says, don't be yoked or connected in such a way that you cannot uh, stay free. For what fellowship, what connection has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion, same word, has light with darkness? What accord or agreement has Christ with the devil? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with the temple of idols? For you are the temple of the living God. That, that's a very picturesque image to say, if I were to go into a Buddhist temple, I am the temple of God. I am literally bringing those two things together. The broader truth that we've got to consider is this. I am the temple of the living God. Am I going into a place of sin? Am I going into a relationship that will draw me into sin? Is this, this magnet of this other person or this other circumstance going to pull me into sin and away from the Lord. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean or sinful, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If we were to, uh, to apply this specifically to the idol worship, we'd say don't bow or pray to an image or an idol. Don't go to a church where they set up an image and people pray to it. 
You say, well, I'm not going to pray to that. Maybe. Don't go to a place where they worship idols. Don't pray to some human being instead of God. Don't participate in any form of worship to anyone or anything other than the one true God in the way that he says. In in light of all that we've looked at so far, look back at verse 14 now again. Flee from idolatry. The question we really have to ask is, am I staying far enough away from sin so that I won't accidentally fall into sin? Your kids ever have accidents? I was just standing on the edge trying to see if I could balance on my heels. Oh yeah, you're all thinking, oh, Pastor Dave, come on. You just got over that last shoulder surgery, yeah. That's right. That's why I kept my hand on here, because I don't want to fall off. And, I, and I'm not going to show off and show you that I can do that. How many people have fallen into sin trying to show off and show how spiritually powerful they were? I can handle that. Can you? How close can you get? I would suggest to you, you don't know how close you can get before it pulls you in. And that's why God says, flee from idolatry. When you see the sinful situation, when you see the potential for harm, he says, that's the point at which you need to take a step back. Now, there's a, there's a real challenge here for the Christian. Okay? Because we know that God wants us to love unbelievers and witness about Christ to them, and we know that there has to be a certain degree of relationship with them in order to accomplish that witness. We want unbelievers to come to church. If you're not a believer in Christ today, I just want to make myself perfectly clear, I'm glad you're here. But the question we have to ask as Christians are is, Is my best friend an unbeliever? Or am I pulling them to Jesus? Tough questions to ask. And frankly, there isn't an absolute way. I can't say uh, now, you know, five steps, that's how far away you have to stay. I can't say that. I know that Lot should have moved out of town. He, he, He got messed up, and his wife got so messed up that when they were fleeing, as God told them to flee, when the fire and brimstone was going to come, she had to look back because her heart was in Sodom. Now, if you'd have said to Lot or to his wife, someday you're going to live in a place that's like this, and you describe Sodom and Gomorrah, and someday you're going to be so messed up, you, you are sad that it's being destroyed they would have went, no way, we're strong. No, no you're not. That's why God says to flee. 
King David should have taken a cold shower. When he looked off of his roof and saw that beautiful woman, she was doing nothing wrong, by the way. She was doing what people did in that day. They went up to the roof and had a bath, cool of the evening, that sort of thing. He should have turned around. He should have remembered God's truth that he said he loved. And he should have done whatever he had to do to walk away. Peter should have listened to Jesus when Jesus said, you are not going to be able to follow me in these next few steps. Yes, I will follow you anywhere. And then Jesus, what did he say? Watch and pray that you don't fall into sin. What did Peter do? Oh, sorry, Jesus, I'm so tired. Okay. And, and here's the kicker for Peter. He, he was almost still okay, even though he's nodding off. Where did he really mess up? He went down to the place where Jesus was being tried. I can stand for him. I'm strong enough. I've got the balance. No, you don't, Peter. Jesus knew he didn't. That's why he said, run, Peter, run. Now, Joseph, in the Old Testament, he had a good, clear line drawn. He said, no, I can't do this. No, I can't do this. He suffered for it. In the end, God blessed him. When I was a teenager, the big question, I mean, this whole idea of uh, parents being involved in who you date, what in the world? Nobody had thought of that yet. And, uh, and so the big question we all asked about dating was, how far can I go? How far is too far? And I'm talking about physical connection with somebody with whom you're dating. That was the wrong question. <laughs> it's the wrong question. If there's something that brings you into a place of temptation, the response to it needs to be flee. Not, hey, I'm strong enough. I can handle this. I can go here without sinning. You know, if there's something in your life that is tempting you, like the computer, Put the computer in the middle of the living room. Let everybody watch everywhere you go on the computer. Say, well, I want some privacy. That's the problem. What we need to want is to please Jesus and to grow in Christ. Look at verse 22. The warning. Uh, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy. If I were to go back, right? Yeah. This is a promise at the end of the 2 Corinthians 6 passage. Come out from among them, be separate. Keep yourself separate from sin. And what will be the result? I will receive you, God says. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. If I were to ask you today, when you walk out of this building, do you want God to be your father and to be your God and to go with you and, and protect you and guide you and help you? Would any of you say, no, I'd really rather do it myself? We pretty much want God to do that. Now, I, I understand we get into some dark places where we say, take a hike to God. That's not right either. But We say, God, I, I want you to be my God. He says, well, here's the deal. Say no to sin. Not just say no, but keep the separation there. Don't get so close that you're being drawn in. Now, 
in, in, the, in the passage we're considering here, it's put in the form of a warning. Look at verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, when we hear the, hear the word jealousy, as Christians, we generally think, well, that's a sin, that's wrong. Well, it often is a sin when we are jealous, but there is righteous jealousy. Listen to this from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11. He's talking to the Corinthian Christians. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have engaged you or betrothed you to one husband, that's God, as God is your father, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, excuse me, engaged to Christ, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. The apostle Paul wanted to make sure that those people he led to Christ and discipled actually were all for God, none for heresy or wrong doctrine, and for the Satan who is behind heresy. He said, I'm jealous for you. I, I tell you what, uh, uh, when you hear of one of your people, and that's the way pastors refer to their people as my people, when you hear about one of them going over to the other side, it, it's, it, it hurts. I, I can think of several specific examples right now of somebody who walked with the Lord and then went in a different direction. And the Apostle Paul said, I am jealous for you with the godly jealousy. I want you to make it in Christ all the way till that day when you are face to face with Christ, your, your spiritual husband. And so he says, are you going to provoke the Lord to jealousy? What, what he's saying is you, you get out here on the edge where the temptation is or where the known sin is and you're, and you're trying to kind of keep your toe just on this side of the line and you're, you're trying to figure out how can I do this sin? And he says, do you know what's happening over there? God is over there and he is jealous. He is jealous. He says, I don't want that for you. And look what he says afterwards. Are we stronger than he Here's God's statement about himself. I am the Lord, and that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. When you get out here and you are wanting this sinful thing so much that you're just on the edge of stepping into sin, what you don't realize is you've also left the worship of God behind, and you're loving this thing. And God says, I am jealous and I will not tolerate the sharing of my glory with someone else. Here's an example from the Old Testament. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me. Here's the scary part. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. You ever think that getting over here and loving this thing and stepping over the line into sin is going to bring the anger of God into your relationship? I know it's real fashionable today to talk about God as love and, and he has a great plan for your life. And that's true, but the great plan is righteousness. The great plan is complete fidelity to him 
And so when you step off, God is angry, and he will do, according to Hebrews 12, he will do what it takes to get you to turn around. If you are a Christian who lives in sin, you will provoke God to jealousy, and he will not allow it. That's why in verse 14, the apostle Paul says, my beloved, I don't ever want anybody to come under the chastening hand of God. Oh, boy, I don't want that at all. I don't want it for myself. I don't want it for anybody else. Mm. I can remember so many times when I was a child, I could have been hurt badly. I remember one time when I was probably in first grade, I was riding my little bike, and I headed out, apparently out into the street, and the next thing I heard was, honk, and the next thing I heard was, David! <laughs> the next thing I heard was, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm alive today! Because I provoked my father to jealousy. The difference between a child and an adult is that the adult knows where the danger lies. The older we get, the more dangers we see, and that's why old people like me can be called fuddy-duddies. Oh, you old fuddy-duddy. In other words, I want to take all the fun out of life. Yeah, that's right. I do not want you to stand on the, on the curb, on the, on the precipice here, the cliff. When it comes to spiritual danger, there are two ways to discern that God is right. There are two ways for you to experientially understand, you know what, God is right when he says flee from sin. There's two ways to understand that. The first way is to believe God's warnings and obey. The second way is to trust yourself, fall down the cliff, then realize God was right while you try to piece your life back together and probably walk with a limp the rest of your days. Beloved, flee from idolatry and all sin. Heavenly Father, oh, sin is so attractive sometimes. Comes in the form of relationships, comes in the form of people, comes in the form of the latest in our society. And it is hard sometimes to turn around and walk away. But I pray that you'll help us to do it. Help us to trust and obey, not to learn by falling down the cliff. Thank you for loving us enough to tell us to stay away. I pray in Christ's name, amen.